0: Hi everyone, welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be going through some recent history game news, uh, particularly news that came out of Gamescom in Europe uh, just this past week. Uh, And in addition to talking about the new games that are coming out, we'll give some updates about already existing history games and maybe some DLC for those. Uh, And then finally, we'll wrap things up by talking about some of the history games and other games that we have been playing recently. On the final part of this episode, I'll be tacking on an old episode, a rebroadcast of a Civs 101 episode. This is our series that looks at Sid Meier's Civilization, and I, I haven't actually picked out which episode I'm going to do a rebroadcast of, so... Uh, it'll be a surprise uh, for me as well as you. Uh, but before we get to all that, uh, let me introduce my co-host on History Respond, uh, still licking his wounds from this past Premier League weekend. Oh God, Doctor John Harney. John, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you coping?
1: Oh, I was actually doing okay. To remind me that happened, Bob. God, for people <laughs> who don't know, uh, our our shared beloved club, Liverpool Football Club, played the worst I've seen them play in like a very 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 long time and my my wife god bless her who's not very interested in soccer but did her best to be uh to be uh empathetic um i think she was mystified at the crying and gnashing of teeth and screaming that was happening during that football match that was tough how did you handle it bob because i got you into this i got you into liverpool for you your did. sins yeah so for the listeners who don't know i got into
0: liverpool by Basically, in graduate school, uh, drinking with John after Friday <laughs> seminars and then crashing on his futon at his apartment and then waking up at 6 a.m. the next morning to discover <laughs> he was watching soccer, as I called it then. Now I call it football, but watching Liverpool. And so it was the worst experience I could remember as a Liverpool fan. I think mm-hmm. it, might, it might even be a little bit worse than the Crystal Palace game back in 2014. For me, uh, just in terms of the shock of what happened. And uh it was tough. It was really rough. And you know, you think about how bad Manchester United has been mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. I mean, we played so poorly. I say we, but Liverpool played so poorly that it was it made them look like a great team, which is I thought I thought was going to be impossible.
1: Yeah, but congratulations to any Manchester United fans listening. <laughs> um I'm sure we they must love be that. Magnanimous, last, yeah, they'd love that last section there, right? Yeah, the- I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's nothing better than hearing fans of the opposing team just miserable and sad. It's, yeah. like, it's okay. You're allowed to enjoy uh, it, people listening.
0: So I'm trying to rebuild uh, Liverpool's mojo uh, right now. I'm wearing my Jurgen Klopp Liverpool <laughs> hat. I look like I've got a headset on, and so uh, I probably look to John like Jurgen Klopp as a. Uh, <laughs> Uh, NFL coach. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then I was going to uh, put back out uh, my Liverpool yard flag in my front yard. Um, I took it down last year. I think we lost some random game early on in the spring, or we drew a game. And so I thought it was bad mojo. I thought it was bad oh, energy. Yeah. So I took it down. And then we ended up winning almost every competition. But now we're really struggling. So I'm like, okay, well, it's time for some reverse mojo. And so I'm going to put that flag back out before the game uh, tomorrow. (laughs) and So we'll see. Fingers crossed. My birthday's tomorrow. We'll see uh, (laughs) if we get a good result against Bournemouth. Uh, We'll see. I don't know. I don't know what to expect. I'm very, very nervous. Yeah.
1: Times are bad. They're better for historical video games.
0: (laughs) Yes. So we have got a lot of news to go through, and I told John we would try to keep this to around 30 minutes. And so we're going to kind of quickly go through some of the news that came out Uh, This past week, uh, during Gamescom, a kind of big European uh, games festival slash uh, industry event. Uh, And so not all of these games were announced at Gamescom, but they kind of came out in the same window, just so people were aware. And so the first game that caught my eye was one called The Great War Western Front. And this is from uh, developers at Petroglyph. And they were the team that was responsible for the recent remaster of command and conquer uh, kind of one that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, So this game that they're working on the great war Western front is a new strategy, real-time strategy game uh, that is going to emphasize historical accuracy. Uh, So the, Kind of write up that I read about this game on Rock Paper Shotgun, which was really good. Uh, Talked to the developers, and their approach is to emphasize the brutality uh, and the attrition on the Western Front. And so, this game, John, it's it, I, you know, kind of read some of the uh, the coverage. I uh, watched the trailer. It looks like it's kind of a, a mix of grand strategy and real time strategy. So it's kind of like a um, uh, you know a total war game in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this seems, this idea, it, it sounds good. You know, the historian in me is like, oh, this sounds great. But the player in me is really nervous for them because <laughs> the idea of actually playing through the brutality and attrition on the Western front, that sounds like a miserable experience. I don't know what you make <laughs> of that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to know. I guess it will we'll see what happens kind of gameplay wise those the paradox games are quite good at doing attrition um like so uh, of course it's the world war ii game but i think hearts of iron 4 you know it can put you in the situation where you're just throwing all these troops into a meat grinder nothing's really happening <laughs> um but you can kind of do that for like 2 hours of your actual life playing a game so i don't know how that would work <laughs> in, a, in a in a typical rts um so that would be kind of i don't know i'm intrigued i mean i like the art style of it it looks interesting mm-hmm. and um I think that uh, you know. I think the, the centenary of World War One definitely got a lot of creative minds going. No and That's kidding. pretty cool. I, I hope it keeps going. I hope this is just going to be a thing for the next ten years at least. You know.
0: No kidding. I you know I remember talking to friend of the show Chris Kempshaw about this and he wrote a whole book about the first world war as depicted in computer games Mm -hmm. and i remember saying to him like well you know we don't have many first world war games but you know maybe we'll get a few more because of the centenary um you know but i just can't imagine anybody really wanting to spend a lot of time in the first world war because of that brutality because of that attrition because of that hopelessness and yet here we are and it feels like every year since the centenary and during the centenary mm-hmm. uh we have had a, a semi major release for a first mm-hmm. world war game and that is that's crazy that was completely unexpected me i would not have guessed that i would not have bet money on that
1: well i mean really quickly i mean you know more about this than me but there's been a shift hasn't there in the last 10 years or so of how we think about world war 1 because for the longest time certainly in britain it was this what is it what's the phrase lions at by Lions led are, by donkeys. Yeah, lions led by donkeys. And that kind of, that kind of there's been that kind of, uh, that frame World War I. And, and as a result, it feels so much more static than World War II does in this kind of narrative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's been changing a little bit the last few years, right? In terms of- You
0: know, I, you know, don't, I don't know about that. I feel like some of that narrative is still there. Um, and I think that there's still quite a bit of work that needs to be done in the public- that describes how much enthusiasm there was for that war during the war itself because i think that we still have this problem where you know people and i include students in this but also other historians who kind of emphasize the lines led by donkey's idea they emphasize the narrative that this was an awful war of attrition it was brutal it was nasty and that Uh, the only sensible thing to do was to commit mutiny or to, you know, basically quit on the job. Right. And, but if you go back to the historical sources, uh, you know, there's of course people writing like Sassoon and uh, Wilfred Owen and uh, you know, Robert Graves, all these famous uh, kind of anti-war narratives, but there's many, many more that felt like this was the great crusade. Uh, And I use that word crusade Mm -hmm. on purpose because Mm they saw it as a what they saw as a great crusade uh, to free Europe, right. To, uh, you know, at least from the Western perspective, but then also from Germany's perspective to kind of pursue their own version uh, demented version of self-determination. And so, uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't know if we've gotten to that place yet, the enthusiasm that existed for the war. I don't know if we, we have like public awareness of that yet because, you know you look at some of the world war 1 games that have come out uh mm-hmm. in the past 5 6 years you've got uh you know what this great war game you've got uh some other uh games what's the ubisoft game that i, I always refer back to um i can't remember valiant hearts yeah
1: oh that's right yeah, yeah. of course. and so
0: those are the kind of games that i think of and those have a very much a you know mm-hmm. Lions led by donkeys mentality to them um but you know, but it's in, yeah, yeah, the more we see these, maybe the different perspective we'll see as well, you know, based on other historical sources. I don't know.
1: It's tricky as well, of course, because um at the same time, like the the Peaky Blinders TV show over in Britain, I think certainly in the British imagination and people in America like that show. Did a lot to talk about, you know, PTSD for people who for veterans of World War I and everything. Yeah. Another part of it is in a lot of nationalist movements at the dawn of the 20th century, I mean Ireland was definitely like this, a lot of those guys got really carried away with this idea of like blood and the purifying power yes. of like war. And of course, you know, um fascism as it should be is a very bad word now. But of course, as you know, Bob, and a lot of the listeners know there was a sustained period where fascism was the hot new thing yeah. that people thought was interesting. And so that, that gets really awkward, you know, yeah. to, to start thinking about it that way.
0: And not, not just fascism, but then also empire, right. Mm-hmm. Empire yep. as a government form is actually preferable and desirable. It's like the highest form of government you can have. And so, right. And I, don't, again, I, just to kind of point this out, I feel like in the public memory the awareness of that kind of oppositional thinking, right? Oppositional in terms of uh, modern day perspective. I don't think there's that awareness yet, right? I don't Mm -hmm. think there's that knowledge of how comfortable these groups were with fascism or comfortable Mm -hmm. with empire, people who would otherwise be relatively supporter supportive of other progressive causes you know women's mm-hmm. rights you had Christ. women's rights advocates who were fascist uh you know you had uh advocates for uh, equal pay who were imperialist right so mm-hmm. it's very hard to kind of throw in modern conceptions of right, right and wrong and black and white into the past it's it's a fool's errand uh basically but that's our yeah. job, right, John? Uh-
1: <laughs> yeah, that's it. that's all we want for the next World War One game. You you know, <laughs> you you are you are you are an Imperial Japan slowly collapsing into fascism. Go! It's like wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. That's uh, right. Yeah. All right. So the next
0: uh, big historical game that was announced during Gamescom uh, was one that's called Word Song. Uh, or Weird Song. I think it it might be Weird Song, Uh, but this is a game that is a gothic RPG game set in medieval Portugal. Uh, And so this game is being developed uh, by a group called uh, Something Wicked Games. And this group is made up of ex-Bethesda and ex-Obsidian developers Uh, people who worked on Fallout, on Skyrim, Outer Worlds, uh, and then Dragon's Age, Inquisition. And so they are calling this game a semi-historical kind of action gothic RPG that has got a lot of Soulsborne influence. Uh, And in fact, the preview that I read on this game, on Rock, Paper, Shotgun, uh, brought up Elden Ring about seven times. So Hmm. it's kind of a big part of this. And apparently the medieval Portugal setting for this game uh, is based off of one of the developers reading a alternative history book uh, about the origins of the Knights Templars uh, in medieval Portugal, or the relationship between the Templars and Portugal uh, during the late Middle Ages. So uh, again, we've got a long experience now with the Knights Templars in historical video games. <laughs> the entirety of Assassin's Creed is about that, uh, and so I'm I'm interested uh, to see what this game is going to be like. And you know, they're already hedging it a bit. They're calling it semi historical, um, so you know we'll see what that means in the final product. But you know, obviously the kind of lineage of these developers coming out of Fallout, Skyrim, Outer Worlds, Dragon Age uh is interesting i would like to see their new rpg Uh, i'm just a little curious about the historical setting here
1: yeah no me too it's funny when i um i love souls like games but i don't know i it's hard to know i mean i i I, you know you just never know how good it's it's going to be and then um There's other little aspects of it. I'm like, it's funny. Like, the more I heard about it, I'm like, okay, the more my excitement was kind of tempered. But for whatever reason, the basic kind of pitch or idea, I'm super attracted by it. I think it sounds really interesting. I kind of wish it was like a fallout kind of game. But um, I don't know. There's something... um, that was it. The Templar thing wasn't super attractive to me, but I don't know, even the little, like I think it's 30 second video they did or 45 second video they did which just, there's some kind of a day night or yeah. real world, you know, bizarro world kind of cycle they're going to do. Um, I don't know. I just, I thought it was, people can go and look it up. Obviously I, I I thought that was very promising. I don't know why. why. And I think that, um, you know, crusaders where there were crusade already in this podcast and this kind of, these kind of age of discovery empires, And especially the Iberian ones and some of the things that they did to other people, um, which, you know, for better, for worse, makes possible that I live in Kentucky now, I guess, in a long way. I'm intrigued by metaphorically what you could do storytelling wise by just going ahead and saying, yes, there's demons. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I just I think that's really promising. And so that that was very exciting to me.
0: Yeah, I think there's things they could do there which would. It'd be a historical but then also make a kind of metaphorical historical point i think you know what you were trying to get to there is yes, yeah yeah there's something that can be said um
1: even if it is kind of a a fantasy uh rpg right right yeah there's lots of horror in the new world but yes. also back in spain and portugal being enacted by by these empires yes so yeah. So making it kind of figurative or making it literary or whatever the fictional is. I don't know. I, I think that's really promising. Yeah.
0: Um, so some other uh, quick Gamescom hits here. These are some games that we didn't get that much information on. Uh, not many previews written about them or not much information forthcoming just yet. Uh, but there was a, a new pirate game announced called Tortuga. And I, I watched the trailer for this and this looks like it's kind of going for a uh, pint of. Pirates of the Caribbean-esque feel. It looks like it might have some naval elements too, but I don't actually know what type of game uh, this is going to be. Then there's another game called Under the Waves, uh, which is a game that is set uh, in the 1970s, and it follows a deep sea diver for an oil company uh, working in the North Sea. Uh, So I really like the sound of that setting. That sounds really cool. Uh, And then the last quick hit that I've got here uh, was there was a new open world game announced uh, called Where Winds Meet. Where Winds Meet. I I need to say that like five times fast. Uh, And this is a game that is set uh, during the Ten Kingdoms era uh, mm-hmm. in medieval China. So uh, John did you get a chance to take a look at the trailer for this or
1: Yeah, I, I saw the okay. Yeah, go ahead. I saw no, the trailer, no, yeah. um really exciting. Um it's very it's clearly made by Chinese developers like you could you know, it's very it's very um uh congruent or it's really fitting with a lot of other Storytelling motifs you see in East Asia, um, in TV as well as video games and in film and everything else, and it's got this kind of, uh, you know, this something the West has done a lot but has struggled to get right. This kind of, um, this uh, you know, so for people who haven't seen, you should go and watch the trailer, and it's kind of showing off the game, but the kind of the voiceover is this very kind of, you know, intellectual slash spiritual kind of framing of everything. Um, which is which is something that is very authentic to the sources we have from that time and how that society saw itself, or how the elite saw yep. themselves. It's something the West has been fascinated by forever, but often, not always, but often it's just kind of cheesy and bad yeah. when they try and kind of, you know, it yep. comes off as not great. It comes off um, as David Carradine and Kung Fu. That's, yeah, what it, <laughs> that's yeah. exactly right. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting. The Ten Kingdoms was the 10th century. So what you're looking at is the disenfranchised of the Tang dynasty, and the Tang was the, the Tang was uh, the medieval Chinese historians can upset me for saying this, but like Buddhism was, um, it was the closest China ever was to having like an official religion. So Tang China was effectively Buddhist China in the sense that the emperors were very Buddhist and are performed, well, what, Buddhist the way Charlemagne was Catholic, let's put it that way, right? So, or became Catholic, um, and it was an important part of their power it all collapses very brutally. It's also, the Tang was a period where you had that kind of great houses political uh, machinery that you see in Europe for so long. And the 10th century was so brutal um, that a lot of those houses just disappeared or never regained the same political kind of heft. And so when that's replaced by the Song Dynasty in the 11th century, you start to see that bureaucracy for which China's really famous kind of, you know, that imperial China's really famous really comes in. So, I'm really fascinated. They would choose that period. Um, there's lots of illusions, I and mean, the game looks fantastic. And then, uh, what all the uh, write-ups I saw mentioned that oh, you don't have to be a warrior; you could be, you know, a baker or something. Oh, like. oh I hadn't seen and, that. Oh, okay. and I, I love I love that idea. I always love oh. that idea that that will happen. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they're claiming that's going to be part of the game. So, and I I've tried to get into a couple of uh, East Asian MMOs the last five to say five to six years, and they they. If people are interested, there's a couple of good like third person action RPGs that are not bad actually. Um, but uh, I, I'm hopeful this is the one that kind of lands because it looks yeah. great. People it looks really good. I got the video. Yeah,
0: and you know the video kind of emphasizes the combat in it, and it looks a lot like Ghost of Tsushima. But I'm really, I'm really glad that you brought up the narrator because that was something I'd said to myself when I was watching the trailer. I was like, you know, I, w- I wonder if John has any thoughts on this narration <laughs> cuz you know i think this is kind of interesting because like like you said western mm-hmm. developers do this thing all the time and you know it comes off as very inauthentic like in a very mm-hmm. very gross way and so this felt this felt a little different right given the the yeah. origin of the developers and everything that's going on here
1: yeah cuz it's it's just hard to get right like i think sometimes people get it wrong in a very clumsy and sometimes even offensive way but sometimes people just don't it's just it's just it's just hard to get it right um and so my initial reaction oh yeah it's totally chinese people making this game Yeah. Yeah. that was just the immediate (laughs) you know reaction
0: yeah Uh, i am interested about the bread maker idea i hadn't heard that in anything or any pre-release coverage that i've been following and that's fascinating to me but it does kind of sound risky it sounds a bit like we're going to make you play through the western front in world war one risky yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) uh,
0: i i do love the fact that these historical games whether they're rpgs or rtss they're going for something different right they're Mm -hmm. they're going for you know historical reenactors who you know many of them are uh Uh, you know, doing historical reenacting battles and stuff. But some of them, you know, they, they were into like, oh yeah, I'd like to be a blacksmith in yeah you know, ninth century china or something like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's me, I, that's I, what I, like I want to do. Yeah, that's Sean. <laughs> well, woodworking, right? Right. That's you, right. I'd be a woodworker. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: Yeah. The final days of the Tang Dynasty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
0: in addition to new games uh, that were announced uh, we've also got some updates about releases of historical games coming up. Uh, that uh, this news was kind of released in the past month or so. Uh, and so the first big one uh, was that Pentiment, uh, the new RPG uh, set in the Middle Ages with a medieval manuscript art style uh, from Obsidian uh, is going to be released on November 15th. And so there were a ton of preview articles about this game that came out of Gamescom. And uh, I think they had some journalists come in and actually play the game. Uh, and everything that I read sounds very positive, but it is also, uh, I think, a game that is very Obsidian. Uh, so if you know anything about Obsidian, these this is a studio that was begun by old... Uh, uh Black Isle developers people who made the original Fallout games uh, Fallout 1 and 2 in particular uh they made uh, a bunch of uh kind of isometric RPG games and then they kind of redefined themselves with uh, Fallout New Vegas uh which was developed in cooperation with Bethesda about 10 years ago so ago and it has Obsidian games have uh you know an RPG RPG credentials but they also have a very serious emphasis on writing, and the writing usually tends to be uh, something that r- doesn't reach a uh, what you might call a Hollywood ending. It can be something that has kind of a, a very subversive tone throughout, and then the ending can leave you wanting, right, in kind of a classic sense. And so, I think in that sense, from what I read about Pentiment, it sounds like this is a very obsidian game, a very obsidian story, and that makes me. Very excited. And I'll say Obsidian one more time, uh, just to wrap (laughs) things up. Uh, And so in addition to Pentiment, uh, we also have a firm release date for Company of Heroes 3. uh, And this is coming out on November 17th. And in addition to the release date, we also learned uh, this past month that there's going to be two campaigns included in this initial release. So Uh, We already knew uh, from pre-release coverage that uh, we were going to get an allied campaign uh, during the uh, invasion of Italy in 1943. That was kind of what they led the initial game trailer with. But now uh, we are also going to get a new campaign uh, set in uh, the war in North Africa, I assume uh, in 1942. uh, And that campaign is going to follow the uh, Deutsche Africa Corps. So this is kind of Rommel uh, and uh, Monty in North Africa uh, during 1942 going into 1943. So uh, pretty interesting. I, I'm, I'm curious as to what this means. You know, I, I figured one campaign is enough, but now we're getting two uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, hopefully that's a good sign, right? That must mean they're pretty confident. I, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what the game is like uh, when it comes out. Any thoughts, any hopes for Company of Heroes 3, John?
1: Um, I'm excited about it. I, I didn't really play Company of Heroes 2 as much as I kind of assumed I would. Um, I For whatever reason, I never quite got into it. People love that game and it looks great. I'm quite excited about Company Heroes 3. I think it's a great fit for World War II, that kind of like tactical yeah. squad kind of stuff. So um yeah no let's see and let's see i mean let's see where they go i'm mean, hopefully the the new campaign is um with these kind of games at this point you know i've i've gone the full i've gone the full journey now um like like the end of the novel 1984 i now embrace dlc and i understand that dlc is just the way it's going to be um and so i would kind of i would love to see what they do as that if that game succeeds of course i hope it does I'd love to see what comes next from them as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, lots of yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. It's going to be good. Actually, I'm, I, I don't know no rational reason for that. I just have a feeling. I don't know. It just feels good. Everything. Yeah. It just feels like it's a well cooked game. Is what. Yeah. Is what I. Is the vibe I get. You know. Yeah,
0: we'll see. Um. So, other quick hits here in terms of release dates. Uh. We. Uh, are going to get an official announcement from Paradox uh, on August 30th. uh, So here in like four days uh, about the official release date for Victoria 3. And so I would imagine that because they are already publicizing when they're going to give us a release date, that that means that it's going to come out pretty soon. So I would imagine this fall at some point. Um, God, I I hope so. I, I think so. Like if they came out on the 30th and said, coming to you, February 15th of 2023, I think there would be a lot of anger (laughs) about that. So I'm guessing it's going to come out relatively soon after the 30th, but uh, we'll see. Uh, In addition to that, uh, we have got a firm release date now for uh, Ubisoft's uh, Skull and Bones. This is the uh, much troubled uh, piracy MMO that they've been working on for the past eight years or so. Uh, And this is coming out on November 8th. Uh, And in addition to that release date, we're also still waiting, I think, on September 7th is when we'll hear more from Ubisoft about their future plans uh, for Assassin's Creed. So, again, uh, we'll probably check back in once that news comes out uh, next month. Uh, In addition to this, we got some news about delays. Uh, So Fail Better Games, uh, Mask of the Rose. Uh, This is a murder mystery uh, dating sim (laughs) that is set (laughs) in uh, their kind of fanciful version, uh, fictionalized version of Victoria London. That's been pushed back to 2023. Uh, And then in addition, uh, the other big victorian action rpg game that was uh scheduled for release later this year which is called nightingale Uh, this is also uh delayed into 2023 so this is a uh, action rpg uh adventure game survival sim kind of a grab bag uh set in a kind of a dark victorian era uh uh setting and this is made by ex-bioware developers so those two games mask of the rose And Nightingale uh, we will hopefully see uh, in 2023. Uh, Lastly, a couple other uh, quick hits regarding uh, historical game news. Uh, We learned from Rockstar Games last month that they are essentially uh, stopping production on new content for Red Dead Online, uh, the much troubled uh, online uh, version of Red Dead 2. And so they are stopping that uh, partly from lack of interest or at least apparent a lack of interest from players uh so that they can re uh, invigorate and ramp up work on Grand Theft Auto 6 uh so uh yeah so Red Dead Online kind of kind of dead uh, from this point forward um and, yeah. and then lastly uh early this month i think it was august 5th uh we had the release of Lucas Pope's Papers Please on iOS and other uh, phone devices, mobile devices. So uh, really great news if you want a uh, really good and useful historical game uh, that can reach students uh, in the classroom, right? You can buy Mm -hmm. this version of the game. It's the full version of the game. Uh, It's relatively cheap, and it's something that students can play on their phones because students these days rarely use desktops. They rarely use laptops, but they are on their phones all the time so that's (laughs) that's really welcome news and i'm glad to see lucas pope is still still doing stuff i think he's he's the great auteur of video games of the past decade and i
1: I can't wait to see what else he does and he's ludicrously like what an annoying person lucas pope is because he's so (laughs) in addition to being just a wonderfully creative person um technically gifted there's yes. it's, it's worth if anyone has any kind of programming interest um it's worth looking up his website is uh i don't know how to say it but it's dukope.com ecom and uh so dukope, i guess uh, Duke forth, yeah. Yeah, forward slash devlogs and he has a blog post talking about um getting papers please onto phones and it's just it's amazing because it yeah. looks great and it plays really well and he just he's t- he basically rebuilt his old game for fun and talks about it like it's nothing uh, and it, it's amazing it's amazing yeah. so yeah, yeah. He's, I'm glad to see him doing well he's incredible uh, the
0: stuff he does is incredible and it's not only marvelous in terms of the historical settings that he places his games but also like you said the technical achievements like you know Papers Please was amazing when it came out and then Return of the Oprah Din is a technological marvel in its mm-hmm. own way and again he's doing largely all of this work by himself this is one person uh developing these games so it's pretty incredible pretty pretty incredible okay uh so that does it for game news release window news uh you know we'll be back next month with more information about all that particularly the ubisoft news Uh, but i wanted to wrap things up uh with this discussion section of the podcast talking about some of the games that john and i have been playing recently and so John, you go first. What's what games sure. have you been playing recently? What historical games or otherwise have you been
1: playing? Yeah. Um, uh, let me see. Otherwise, first, I'm back into Destiny 2 for my sins. And uh this is quasi-historical related. Uh, in the new activity in the new season we started on Tuesday, um, I was fighting a boss and having fun. It's very destiny, it's you're just shooting lots of things. And it dawned on me, and I was helping lead these NPCs to recover their ship. Um, their their spaceship and um, we're fighting this stuff and it's like is that effing pirate music playing while i'm fighting this massive alien it is like good for you bungie this is fun this is the pirate the pirate vibes continue um i um i went back to control which i played like a year ago and actually i had to restart all over again which i actually didn't mind because that's just a fun game to hang out in um and it's been well, a lot was an interesting game to hang out in that's been interesting because for people who don't know I don't want to spoil anything um in control um it's the federal bureau of control is this kind of big part of the story uh, the fbc and there's lots of kind of a uh, sinister you know, it's potentially sinister either by design or even like accidentally bad. And there's a long strain of that, I think in American society. And at the moment, sadly, um, there's definitely an uptick in thinking yes. the FBI is evil um, yes. and up to no good and out to get you. And um, so that's been interesting to play control with that happening. Um, and also controls really a crazy, crazy good game. Yeah. That people should and play if they haven't played.
0: It's got some great, um, material culture, uh, not mm-hmm. you know necessarily one-to-one material culture, but great material culture from kind of late 60s, early 70s, brutalist architecture yes. and then also kind of just office ephemera uh, from mm-hmm. kind of the mid- Cold War period. so it's it's really great. it's it's
1: it's, it's a it's a beautiful game. and for people who might be in the same boat as me, i don't know about a playing time i it's it's a fun game to play but i just i ramped all the sliders down to make it easy to play um and it's still fun like that's the, which is always i think an amazing thing that mm-hmm. like on easy mode the game is buckets of fun um i uh this game's throughout a couple of years but i only started playing it the last week or two hunt showdown hmm. uh, I which heard is, that. so um it's uh how do i explain this um the single-player mode, as it were, is kind of like a PUBG-type game-ish. Um, and uh, But kind of the main mode they want you to do is really encourage you part of a team, ideally two people, maybe three people. And you're put on a map like in PUBG or, or Fortnite or one of those games. But instead of kind of being shepherded towards a certain point of the map, you have to go and locate these clues. And once you've located three clues, it reveals where this monster is, this boss monster thing. And so you go and try and take down the boss. Now there's other players in the game and it's a PVP V E type game. So you could just take each other out, but it makes more sense to wait for someone to take out a boss and then, you can kill that person and take the loot. Um, and it's when you try to explain to someone, it sounds, God, this sounds very complicated. It's actually not that complicated. Um, and I've been surprised how much I've been enjoying it. And the whole thing is set in this non-time-specific Louisiana with monsters and everyone's hmm. wearing like duster coats and really? you know, it, yeah. it yeah and it's got horror vibes but it's it's just I'm gonna put this so, down in my notes actually. Yeah. So it's really it's playing with a lot of that stuff that Louisiana fiction set fiction often does. You know that kind of American gothic slash actual horror. Yeah, yeah, motif. yeah. Yeah. Um and so I've been digging it more than I thought I would. And cool. so there and so that would be something I've been kind of thinking, oh, I wonder if I should Find someone who does history of Louisiana and talk about this game. Um, and then finally, um, Cult of the Lamb,
0: mm, which yes,
1: is excellent. People should play Cult of the Lamb, and there's a lot of um, they they kind of named some characters after it. There's lots of allusions to kind of uh, you know, pre Christian European paganism type stuff in there. Um, which is and it's just it's like you might have heard of it people describe it as animal crossing plus dungeon running Um, but also you can sacrifice people in your village uh, you know and it's excellent it's really yeah. good it's a really good game
0: i've been listening to the next Lander podcast where they've talked a lot about it and it sounds really good and it does it kind of reminds me i think the the tone of it and then also the resource management side of it kind of reminds me a bit of uh peter molyneux uh dungeon keeper Uh, oh yeah you know maybe not one-to-one but just kind of like the the tone
1: it's going for Mm -hmm. it's i they've nailed the tone and it's yet again devolver are the uh, publishers not the developers but um yet again they've nailed you know the, the tone is just right like it's just funny without being goofy or silly and Um, I mean, if if you're, and there's no judgment here, but if you're coming from a kind of a conservative religious background, it's definitely not the game for you. As in, if you're not going to enjoy basically, you know, controlling an anthropomorphic lamb that leads a satanic cult, or not even satanic, (laughs) but... You know, it's not yeah. technically satanic, but it basically is. Um, but I'm here to tell you, as somebody who was raised in a fairly conservative Catholic background, that it's pretty fun, and it didn't bother me. <laughs> don't feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> don't feel bad. Uh, but it's also it's it's funny because I I heard I read and heard those descriptions, thought I don't know. Then you play it, it's like oh yeah, this just works. This is just good. yeah.
0: I, I was kind yeah. of a little turned off by the preview coverage. I was like, yeah, it doesn't sound that great. And then to hear you talk about it, to hear other people that I respect talk about it, I that's now on my list as well. Yeah. That's on that's on the list.
1: Totally worth it. Really good. So, how about you? What have you been playing?
0: Yeah. So, real quick, I've been playing quite a few games. Uh, I don't I don't know if the, people listening to this might not follow me on Twitter, but I had uh, my whole family had COVID uh, throughout July. So I did nothing really at all, uh, during that month. And then this past month, I've just been trying to catch up on things. And we also got a new puppy. Uh, we've got a, a two month old border collie at the house that I'm looking after right now. And I'm actually downstairs in my kitchen recording this episode on some really old technology. I'm on, uh, the first podcast mic that I ever bought. Uh, it's a blue snowball, uh, from like 10 years ago. It still works. Um, so I haven't had that much time to play games except in the past couple of weeks. Uh, I did, uh, at the beginning of the summer, I played through Returnal, a PS5 game, a Souls-like that's got a sci-fi setting. That is easily one of the hardest games that I've ever played. Really, really difficult, but really rewarding. Uh, I also played uh, Ghost of Tsushima. I put about 15 hours into Ghost of Tsushima. And, you know, we cover that game for History Respawn. I think John shared a lot of, you know, good insight about that. Uh, And for myself, I think that that game is really gorgeous, really beautiful. I played the PS5 version uh, and I enjoyed the look of it, but I got really bored of the combat. Uh, You know, there's some
1: Mm, kind of upgrades that you get
0: and it is very much just kind of a lot of Either shooting arrows or slashing guys over and over and over and over and over again, and I just, I kind of just got a little bored of that. I love the love the story, uh love some of the storylines. I, I particularly was following one uh, with your your archery sensei uh, and one of his ex students that I thought was really compelling, but you know, just kind of the grind of that game of doing the same thing over and over again, and. You do have other options in play style. You can do it stealth, but I feel like the stealth doesn't quite work that well Mm -hmm. in that game. So I always found myself going into open combat and getting kind of bored. Uh,
1: But that's just me. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole fun of that game was walking up to a town and going, come on, if you think you're hard enough. And they all just come at you. And you just, you know, yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. Let me be that. was a- good. That was a good first five hours, I think. And yeah, then that's I'm just right. like, that's oh. right.
0: Uh, uh, all right. And then it's kind of like hour seven. It's like, okay, come on. It was out there. Just, yeah, come fight me. Yeah. Okay. Hack slash. Okay. You're dead. Yeah, a little bit boring. Um, in addition, I've been getting a lot of use out of my Steam Deck. I've been playing. A lot of uh, Microsoft Game Pass games on there. So I uh, used the X Cloud. Uh, All of these words would have been completely foreign to me about five (laughs) years ago. I used uh, the Microsoft X Cloud to play through uh, all of the Gears of War games that I missed over the last decade because I didn't own an Xbox. Uh, So I played Gears 4, I played Gears 5, and I played Gears Tactics. uh, And I played all of those games through the cloud, on the Steam Deck, and it ran fantastic. Um, And then I've got a a Thursday night crew uh, that I play multiplayer games with, and so we've been delving into the recent updates for GTA Online. Uh, I've been playing Fortnite seriously for the first time. I've got a friend, actually, who's now level 157 in Fortnite, and I'm level 25. Uh, <laughs> if you had told me a couple years ago that I'd be playing Fortnite, I would have said, you're a liar. <laughs> uh, and then just recently, we all uh, got copies of uh, Borderlands 3, and uh, we'd been kind of holding off on that. We were all interested in it, but we held off until uh, there was cross-play enabled for PlayStation. So uh, that was finally enough to get me to play it as well. And so they're playing on PC and then somebody's playing on Xbox and then I think another person is actually playing through stadia, uh, Google stadia. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm playing on PlayStation and yet the multiplayer works really well, works seamlessly. So having a lot of fun with that. So yeah, trying, trying my best to get back in the groove. Uh, I had hoped to do some writing for history respawn. It just didn't happen this summer. So I'm hoping to do some of that this fall and, uh, yeah, I'm just thankful to survived COVID and to survive this summer. Cause it was really terrible. It was a really, really bad summer. And I, I'm actually very thankful this semester is here. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right. Any, any lasting thoughts before we log off here, John?
1: Uh, no, just excited about games.com. I, you know, the, the, the thing about I was busy with work and everything and, the Gamescom mm-hmm. coverage is like, oh, there's it kind of got hit with stuff that I, I forgot that game was coming out or, yeah. oh, that's cool. That game exists. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people should think of me on the 30th of August and listen to this podcast because I'd be sitting by a computer waiting to know when Victoria 3 comes out because <laughs> I am excited about that, about that video game. We're we're going to do that upright. I think
0: I'm going to do I think I'm going to do a playthrough of Victoria three and yeah, really delve into it. People had always asked me when I started history respond to do a uh-huh. playthrough of Victoria two. And I'm like, mm-hmm. eh, I don't know. It's kind of old at this point, but yeah, now with Victoria three, I think it's time to dust off that PhD in British imperialism and just really just dive right into it.
1: Well, it's perfect for you. And, and, and because of a lot of, I think good things that have happened and that, like since Victoria two came out in terms of how people talk about these things, they've just, they've had to grapple with, with, st- well, at least from all the dev blogs and stuff they're doing, they've had to grapple with some historical dynamics in ways that we would find more interesting. Yes, and yeah. I'm not—that isn't meant to be a diss of Victoria, too. I just mean there's—it's there, been some key differences now with this new yeah. game. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that does it for this portion of the podcast. Please stay tuned for a read broadcast of a Civs One Hundred One episode. Still haven't picked it out yet, so uh, you'll just be as surprised as I am, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but John, thank you so much for joining me on this episode
1: thank you bob thanks everyone for listening
0: and thank you listener thank you for supporting the show uh, if you're interested in our work in our archives please visit historyrespawn.com uh, and if you are feeling particularly generous maybe consider dropping a few bucks on our patreon uh, patreon.com forward slash history respawn. and a big shout out to uh, bbc uh, for profiling uh, or at least mentioning history respond on bbc radio 4. Uh, recently we got an uptick in downloads for the show so many thanks to that crew uh, and many thanks to our long-term listeners you know uh, you were the reason why this show exists to begin with so thank you very much uh, again stay tuned for civs 101 uh, and then otherwise until next time goodbye Hi and welcome to Civs 101, the show where historians discuss Sid Meier's Civilization series. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the Inca, led in Civilization VI by Pachacuti. The Inca have been a part of a Civilization series since Civ 3, but they've become an especially compelling Civ in Civilization VI, where they are introduced as part of the environmentally focused Gathering Storm DLC. The Inca Civ offers several unique abilities that allow gathering storm players to make the most of surrounding geography and environment. But how closely do these abilities mirror Inca history? And are there any ways in which the depiction of the Inca in this game can be improved? To help me answer these questions, I've invited onto the show Dr. Christopher Haney. Dr. Haney is an assistant professor of Latin American history at Penn State University. Dr. Haney's research interests include the history of the Incas, museums, and the looting and collection of the dead in Peru and the Americas. He's the author of the book, Cradle of Gold, which told the story of Hiram Bingham's discovery of Machu Picchu in 1911. Fans of History Respond will remember Dr. Haney from our episode on Uncharted 4. Chris, welcome to Civs 101.
2: Thanks so much, Bob. I'm very happy to be back.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So Chris, what is your experience with the Civilization series? And also, can you tell us, what do you make of the way that this series presents the past?
2: I first played uh, Civilization in the backseat of my friend's car on a road trip um, in Portugal about uh, 10 years ago. I wasn't somebody who grew up on... Uh, the early iterations of the game. I was more of a SimCity 2000 reticulating spleens uh, kind of guy. <laughs> um, and uh, But I was, you know, we're doing this road trip in uh, incredible uh, Atlantic countryside, and I just couldn't look out the window because I sucked into the uh, the iOS port of the game, which I guess was Civilization Revolutions.
0: That sounds right, uh-huh. yeah.
2: Which is probably pretty um, uh, stripped down compared to where the the, the console or the for the desktop version was at the time, but um, I loved it, and uh, you know, I think it was the first game I paid money for on on um, on iOS uh, so that I could play as the Aztec, uh, which weren't in my mind as awesome of a choice uh, as the Incas, but did let me do the um, uh, the, the sort of the route to victory that, that I loved, which was uh, taking the Aztecs to a scientific uh, domination, mm. um, because I loved how their their temples um, could uh, give that science bonus uh, in the late stages. Well, from from early on, but in the late stages of the game, create a really cool effect, which I thought was also kind of an interesting way of talking about um, cosmologies and and knowledge as as it not just being Um, quote-unquote science, but just ways of understanding the world that uh, uh, other understandings of sacred um, uh, and and, uh, sacred beings could reflect. And so um, I had a lot of fun with that, but I hadn't really ever played it on a desktop um, uh, until you reached out to me, and I sort of checked back in. I downloaded uh, Civ 6 at about 50 BC in in a game. Uh, with uh, the Incas, and I don't think I'm using them right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I have converted everyone in uh, Jerusalem and Madrid to my Inca religion uh, that I, that I uh, uh, took that path on, and so I'm feeling pretty good about that.
0: Excellent. Good work. Yeah, I haven't quite gotten to a religion yet. I'm at 75 uh, BC. Uh, here and so it's, uh, it's kind of something It's a little disappointing uh, for this play so far. But uh, as you can see, it's uh, kind of in the middle of a continent here, randomly created continent. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've got a lot of uh, terrace farms going on, uh, we've got a few mm-hmm. city states in the region. And then interestingly, we've got the the Congo, uh, another Civ over here, uh, just to the southwest. And I actually haven't played against the Congo that much or played as the Congo. So I'm really curious as to see where this game goes and to see what kind of relationship emerges here. As you can see so far, they're still pretty friendly. Uh, So things are things are going okay at the moment. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, And then also, uh, I kind of queued this up a little bit. It it made sense for the game, but then also thinking about our upcoming discussion, I'm in the process here of building Machu Picchu uh, for the Mm. Incas. So um, I figured that would uh, be worthwhile (laughs) for this episode. Um, So next question uh, related specifically to the leader. Uh, of uh, the Inca in this game, and that's uh, Pachacuti. And I'm wondering, what do you make of Pachacuti as a representative figure for the Inca? And furthermore, are there any other potential candidates that you think could make a good leader for this civ?
2: Yeah. um, I think he's the clear and obvious and right choice um, for a number of reasons. I have some other candidates, um, but I think having Pachacuti and playing as him also helps um, me sort of think and create sort of a a headcanon, if you will, about what is exactly going on in a civilization game. Um, I didn't answer your earlier question about what I think about, it's how it uses civilization in general. And um, I guess maybe I hinted at it that I take great pleasure at like being the Aztecs or the Incas and um, trying to run the table on, on other civilizations, <laughs> um, because of how they've been represented in the past um, in world histories, as um, you know, from from the 16th century, uh, particularly in the case of the Aztec, as um, "quote unquote" uh, um, savage or sacrificing, and therefore um, uh, worthy of conquest by Europe, or in the case of the Incas, as uh, as the stereotype from the 16th century was as, as noble, but ultimately unable to uh, defend themselves adequately against European um, religion and, and technological superiority, um, supposed technological superiority, uh, which in the 20th, 20th century, I think it's resurrected as, as thinking about germs um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and again, technology as sort of the things that, um, uh, provide a civilization with the means to sort of conquer other people, not necessarily um, uh, thrive. Um, And Pachkruti is interesting for me as a way to think about um, what playing as the Incas does for a game like this. Um, uh, One of the questions I had for you, and you can answer it, um, but is is what exactly we're doing when we choose a historical figure um, to play as this game. Uh, I sort of, for me, it's always been sort of like a fun extra layer. I was like, "Oh yeah, if, if I would, were playing this, this this people, it would make sense to have um, this leader." But it's not really as if you're Mahatma Gandhi all through human <laughs> history. I mean, this is a game, obviously. Um, but Pachucuti is an interesting way of uh, thinking through that um, idea because he is. Uh there are a number of different counts of how many Inca emperors there were. He was the ninth, um, according to some counts. Um, I checked out the civilopedia they have on him, and it's pretty good in, in saying that he was um, born Cusillupanqui, uh, the son of uh, a Inca emperor named uh, Viracocha. Viracocha. Um, and at some point he went from uh, a, uh, a leader of um, Viracocha's, one of Viracocha's army or a co- Co-ruler to being the ruler himself uh, when he f- defended Cusco from an invasion of um, a, a neighboring group named the Chanka, uh, and uh, at that point he he shamed his father and took control of the Inca state, um, and uh, that state was named Tawantinsuyu or the four parts drawn together, and after Pachakutik um, uh, or Pachacuti. Uh, The Incas expanded from their valley in Cusco uh, in this larger um, area in the southern Andes, and over the course of the next three generations uh, created the largest uh, empire in the Americas, uh, reaching up to Ecuador and down to Chile and Argentina. And uh, there was a work of three generations. uh, Kusi Upanke, um, uh his son Tupa Upanke, and then uh, his grandson Huayna Capac who was the last uh, fully recognized Inca emperor before the Spanish invaded and his sons Atahualpa and Huascar fought each other um, and I think I understood that Huayna Capac was also a possibility um, mm-hmm. in, in an earlier game Yes, um, uh, and that's Pachacuti is the better choice because Huayna very famously um uh Dies at a crucial moment, um, right as the Spanish are beginning to invade, and the the competitions between uh, his sons is one of the reasons that the empire is vulnerable to uh, the Spanish invasion. They're able to take advantage of rivalries among um, the the Inca houses as well as among their subjects, and uh, position themselves as um, basically false, force multipliers for one side against the other, uh, and and essentially, through trickery, taking over the entire empire. Um, Pachputi, though, is, is uh, you know, he's at he inaugurates this transformation of a valley-based polity to this massive um, empire that was an empire like uh, old world um, empires were empires in terms of their domination of distant people, uh, having a cosmovision that sort of, that positions the Incas as above everyone as as children of the sun and because the sun was understood to be everyone's ancestor they were therefore the ancestors of all of their subjects um which matters for Pachacuti upon his death uh Pachacuti one of the the reforms that he introduced to the to the Incas was the transformation of their uh mortuary cult um the after how he how he remade Inca religion was um, after Pachacuti uh, died. When an Inca died, they didn't really die; uh, they were uh, preserved, they were artificially mummified, um, and uh, understood to be still living and capable of bringing down lightning um, and, and rains. And they were remained the master and mistresses because um, it wasn't just an Inca, but an Inca and their on uh, their consort, um, the Coya. Uh, they became the master and mistresses of um, their houses, even in death, as well as their their estates, which stretched from Cusco to Machu Picchu across the empire. So you had a cohort of what in, uh, in Spanish eyes were dead emperors, but in the eyes of the Incas were still living, which makes Pachacuti I think, the perfect civilization leader because under his... Uh, ideology and religion he never dies um (laughs) he just keeps on going and it's actually you know it conforms with like how would you reflect an inca cosmology in a game like this you would take seriously that like the most powerful inca emperor would continue to shape the lives of um his descendants um in in actual history it wasn't well maybe it was pachacuti i'm I'm not going to say it wasn't um uh uh, but his, his, uh, sons, but particularly daughters who were in charge of his cult would sort of shape the policies of the empire. So I think it's fun to play as Bacchikuti and think about that as, as thinking about a, a centuries millennia old, um, uh, uh embodied, um, consciousness and sort of set of wills coming, emanating from, from a, uh, Inca lord and and using that to sort of project outward and sort of remake the world, which is what Pachacuti's name meant. It meant world changer, world world transformer, mm. um, the person who brings about the revolution. Um, and so for him, it very, was very much about reaching out from Cusco and and extending um, Inca Inca power uh, and and cosmovision vision across uh, the Andes.
0: Mm. That's fascinating. It's interesting to think that uh you know okay. relating it to Inca cosmology and uh, the thought of uh, uh mummification and how digital avatars actually <laughs> fit into a surprisingly yeah. well into that kind of history. And you know to answer your question to me uh, regarding you know why do they focus on these central figures? It, it used to be the case um you know in Sibs 1 through 5 basically. Where when you were a player and you were picking your um, Civ to play, you would pick it based on, um, you know, what civilization, what nation state you were interested Mm -hmm. in playing at. And the leader of that group would be kind of a secondary concern. But now with Civilization VI and all of the new DLC that's come out, they've really focused on the leaders first and the kind of country of origin or the civilization that they're based out of is kind of a secondary concern and i think that has to do with their emphasis in terms of building up role-playing mechanics uh in the game and so you know you've made this offhand remark uh, about uh you know uh people playing as gandhi and you know staying as gandhi and Uh, you know, their play habits, well, you know, it could be the case that some of these players do actually kind of build into their uh, thought with this game that they are play acting uh, as these Mm -hmm. historical figures. And so, at least for some players, particularly those familiar with role playing games, that kind of play acting uh, is something that can help, I think, draw the player closer uh, to one of these 4X games, one of these big strategy games, which tend to be on the whole kind of impersonal, you know, they're, they're not uh, something you really think about having a close personal reaction with, uh, but uh, instead thinking about it in terms of hexes and numbers and, uh, uh, and different sliders that you can adjust. But I think with Civilization VI, they're kind of thinking of it as in terms of building up your personal narrative with this uh, historical actor that you are uh, taking on the role of uh, throughout this game.
2: I like that. Um, I, th- I think one, I know this is jumping on one of the questions, um, but to give a taste of it, I think something that would be interesting is to think about not just individual but individuals, but couples. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, I th- when, when the Spanish got to Peru in what they called Peru in the 16th century, uh, their understanding of, of what a leader was or a monarch was, um, was largely defiled by, uh, de- defined um, by male inheritance and primogeniture. And so they were the ones who were concerned with creating king lists and sort of figuring out, OK, who, is, who are the important kings? Um, and Pachacuti wasn't just uh, Pachacuti. Pachacuti, in order to become the Inca and have this leadership, had to uh, find a consort, another equally Capac royal or worthy um, uh, member of his family. And his was Koya Anaparte. Um Later, uh, uh, empresses uh, were even more powerful than her. Um, uh, his uh, daughter-in-law, Mama Occhio, uh, ruled um, the Inca empire while her son, Juana Capac, was um, too young uh, to, to take on the role. And so it'd be interesting to think about um, how it's you know it's not just singular individuals but the sort of the complementary relationships um, that particular cultures have that you know we get us away from like the literally the great men and I know that elizabeth is 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 here as well um, uh, um, but sort of the 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 families or sort of combinations of people that uh, that also were you know what created power uh, mm-hmm. in the case of the Incas it's Well, what Pachacuti was off um, uh, dominating, um, you know, his consort would be at home essentially ruling the capital and the religious um, organization of the Incas.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that leads us into the next question really well, which is this idea of civilization. And, you know, this game is built on this notion of civilization, which you know, as a historical construct harkens back to a different era of historical study, one dominated by the West and, you know, built around largely arbitrarily constructed groups of people usually living in the Western world in the ancient era. And so given the nature of civilization as an idea, what do you make of this game's depiction of the Inca civilization? And Do you feel that the Inca Civ gives players a real sense of Inca history, or do you think the term civilization does a disservice to our perception of that history?
2: Um, I think, you know, civilization has this very problematic um, uh, past and how it was used, especially in in the 18th, 19th century, to uh, essentially sort between those civilizations that could be included under the you know the quote-unquote the west or could be opposed as the east or the orient and um, especially when it comes to native peoples in the 19th century was used as sort of a cudgel um, by anthropologists and others to say um, that people in africa or in the americas didn't have civilization um, What's interesting. Oh, right. Machu Picchu is being made. It is, yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> the one. Um uh not the one. Uh, that but that's that kind of plays into the point of of uh the Incas were kind of from the 16th century. Um used as an exception by Europeans. Um in a way that is that both recognized that once the Spanish got to Cusco, um they were Awestruck at what they saw as a city as um, ordered and laid out and wealthy and um, literally palatial as those of Europe, and perhaps even more so than most places that these cookie stores were coming from in Europe. Um, uh, and that in the 16th century uh, was part of the critique that uh, that critics of Spanish Empire made of of their expansions, like they that the, the Spanish toppled an empire as perfect as any in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, what's loaded in that judgment that this idea that starts from the 16th century, that the Incas were um, civilized, um, is that other native peoples weren't. Um, Mm -hmm. And that uh, the the Incas were either um, an exception um, that proved the rule or something that existed in the past, that after they were supposedly conquered, I say supposedly because um, the Incas uh, survived as a people um, through uh, the 19th century under the Spanish, and then their, you know, their heirs um, living today in Spain and, and in Peru. Um, but the idea being that their their greatness was a thing of the past, and so I think you know the civilization does get used to um, beat on people. Um, and sort of judge them as you know do they do they fill the check the boxes mm-hmm. of of uh, what Europeans were expecting to uh, to find or respect. Um, all that said, um, it was really cool to see how they they'd uh, brought Pachucuti's um, uh, biography in, and you know I, there's things that I would add. You know like the 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 the, uh, the duality of, of marriage and what that meant for Inca rule and things like that. And, and, you know, my, my, the thing that I think a lot about is, is, uh, knowledges of the dead and religion and things that get very specific, but in general, you know, that, that biographies is pretty good. it sort of, it, it holds up, um, uh, the, the, uh, the Kavaknyan uh, function um, is, uh, I think, a great addition. I mean, how great is it to not be to to turn the 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 roads into um, uh, the mountains into roads? I, I would say for the developers not to step on another question. Go that, for it. Go for it. That uh, the Incas would have not just built the roads but um, uh, had them pretty well defended too. Um, mm. It would you know, they could make them. It does make uh civilization or see i just did it myself of people <laughs> vulnerable to have roads that uh enter it from from just about anywhere but i think the incas did a very good job of control and movement along them um uh i think i didn't get so far as to uh get to play as the Watakak. um uh uh but that seems a pretty uh interesting sort of incorporation of uh Inca military prowess as an advantage that sort of tips tips the the usual way that they're viewed in the Jared Diamond guns, germs, and uh, steel sense as as their technology not being superior. Um, I think what we know about technology is that it's uh, cultural; um, that the way you use it is important, and that in particular um, settings, one technology uh, is more apt than another. Um, And, and I think, you know, having, having them uh, uh, is interesting. I, I wasn't able to build Machu Picchu myself, so I don't know what it does uh, for for the Incas, Um, but it was, it was a royal estate of uh, Pachacuti um, that he built as he expanded towards um, the jungle. Um, And uh, does it do anything special for yeah, so it's
0: got the description here. Uh, Mountain Tiles uh, provide a standard adjacency bonus to commercial hub, theater space, sphere, square, industrial zone districts in all cities. Uh, so this is a, kind of a, a powerful improvement that you can use to kind of add on points to the money that you're bringing in through commercial hubs, the culture that you're bringing in through theater squares, uh, and then the production that you're bringing in through industrial zones. And, of course, it is very closely tied Uh, to Mountain Tiles, which I think make the Inca a really interesting inclusion uh, in Civilization VI, and particularly with the Gathering Storm DLC, which, uh, you know, post-release DLC downloadable content that came out a couple years ago. And uh, it really closely ties the Inca into the natural environment uh, where you start. And so, Uh, If you happen to start in a mountainous region like the one we've got here, you've got all sorts of uh, potential advantages that you can take advantage of based off of natural environment, which, you know, in past civilization games, uh, it was very often the case that mountain regions in particular were kind of wasted space. Um, But I think here with the way that they've incorporated the Inca, it's a way to enliven the gameplay. Uh, for players, but then also to kind of build upon the idea that well uh, we don't have to conceive of mountain regions of these terrains as just spaces for western civilizations, instead, we can also conceive them in different ways using different sieves so I think for me personally, playing as the incas it's one of my favorite things to do uh in this d l c because it really ties you into the narrative they're presenting about the importance of environmental history, but then also the potential for non-traditional sieves. Uh, you know, like uh, non-England or France or Germany, all these classic uh, nation states that are used as civs, incorporating them as powerful players in the game.
2: Yeah, I like that. And I like that, you know, as you carry it forward, it it lets you think in a... And I think a way that's very useful about what um, indigenous societies give, continue to give, and gave, and um, uh, th- to um, to uh, world history. And and you know, I think it's important to flag that indigenous peoples um, um, in Peru, in Bolivia, continue. Um, to struggle um, with the state and how they've been uh, marginalized and um, and uh, that, uh, but also that they are the inheritors of uh, millennia-long traditions of, of using mountains and altitudes to experiment with different food sources. Um, we have all the varieties of potatoes that we have, and there are a lot of varieties, even though you can only buy a few in American stores. Um, uh, because of their uh, their experiments with agricultural um, and botanical uh, uh, crossing of strains, at different altitudes over over millennia, mm-hmm. uh, and that you know, potatoes being one of those crops that feeds the world, um, mm-hmm. and their contributions and use of of mountain environments um, to uh, develop medicines, medicaments like um, uh, anti-malarials like cinchona, which we know. We mostly run across today as the is as, as, as the tonic in gin and tonics, but that has the cinchona bark that was first crafted by um, uh, former subjects of the Incas in the 17th, 18th century to respond to malaria coming from the Old World. That's an Andean contribution, um, and you know I think anything that sort of gets people to uh, to think about uh, the strengths of a society that aren't, you know, can they get ships out into the ocean as fast as possible? Mm -hmm. um, is, is pretty, pretty wonderful. One thing I did, um, want to point to as, as, um, a, as, as a missed opportunity, but I think it's probably a missed opportunity that's true of the entire game system. Um, uh, is the, uh, the Mita, Mm. um, and that's the working of mountains, and I think it's great in an um, uh, agricultural sense, in a production sense. Um, but what is also hiding in there uh, is is what exactly labor is in this game. Um, here, it's in 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 history, the mita was a ter- turn labor, um, a turn at labor that every community member, male community member, had to do for the empire. Um, and it was based in some Andean ideas of uh, mutual obligation um, and reciprocity, uh, but it was definitely top down when it came to the Inca, and um, it edged into um, the the this empire's ability to move people around and make them uh, permanent uh, workers or yanaconas, which um, the, the Incas did not uh, have slaves in the categorical sense. Um, that uh, Europe did, but they did have people who were bound to the state mm-hmm. and um, did not have, uh, they, they didn't have chattel slavery is what I'm trying to say, but mm-hmm. they did have essentially captive and dependent peoples, which is something that, you know, if, if there's one spot that um, I think the Civ games really, you know, leave off the table because it would be pretty upsetting to play as. I understand why they do it is that, you know, this vision of, uh civilizational advance and technological advance in human history is is um you know doesn't really look directly at how much of that um uh development particularly in europe for example was based on uh the captive bodies of others Mm -hmm. and i don't think that is something to include in the game but i think in terms of how we what is history here and what isn't? That's one of the things that's not—that's um, not history that's left off the table. Yeah. Um, again, for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is, oh, what is this here? Uh,
0: yeah. So there is a um, uh, a, a benefit uh, that comes on later in the game, uh, the um. triangular trade, and it does make some mention here of oh. the transatlantic slave trade, but just in an indirect sense, and you only get. Uh, a a real look at this if you bother to go into the civilopedia. So it's not something that's kind of put forward in front of the player, right, to look at. Um, yeah. You have to go around digging in the civilopedia for it. Uh, but this is kind of one of the few instances in this game where that kind of subject matter is brought up, but it's not necessarily brought up in a way that I think really directly deals with it in a way that you would really want as a historian. And You know, this kind of follows through with uh, the long term uh, depiction of slavery by civilization. Um, You know, Sid Meier talks a whole bunch about how, you know, they were trying to use this game uh, and use for the game uh, history that you would find in like a, uh, a children's library. You know, it's not kind of designed to be uh, the kind of really hard hitting history that you would get later on in grade school or in uh, college, obviously. Um, And so on the one hand, that makes the game approachable to players because they feel like this kind of children's library version of the past is one that they can easily grapple with and master and know. Uh, So it kind of strokes their ego. But at the same time, it uh, leaves a lot of these kind of uncomfortable gaps uh, in history, like you said. And, you know, this is just kind of one instance here of that kind of uncomfortable history briefly uh, being mentioned. Um, but it's not something that, you know, would really fly in, in most uh, college classes, uh, for instance. So it is something I think, yeah, it's very worthwhile to to keep in mind and also to keep in mind, you know, because this is something, this benefit just briefly uh, comes after you get uh, mercantilism. Uh, so it comes kind of mid to late point in the game, uh, but it kind of ignores the subject matter you're talking about up to that point, you know, what's going on in the ancient era, what's going on in the classical era. Uh, all of these different eras leading up to this point, it's like uh, when you get to Mercantilism in the Renaissance uh, and later, it's like, oh, here it is, you know, but what happens before that? I think that's that's a really great point. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for my questions. Anything else? Any other recommendations you might have regarding uh, the game or uh, the Incas in specifics?
2: I think uh, just I'd, I'd recommend to your to your listeners. There's some great books out there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a there's a slightly older one by a Peruvian historian named uh, Maria Ruspolowski, the Diaz who uh, the history of the Inca realm, um, which is uh, she's since passed away, but is gives a really Good sense of like what is different about um, Inca statecraft and complementarity and co-rulers and and how exactly the Incas expanded not just through military prowess but but by sort of making relationships. Um, and another great one, Alan Covey's *The Inca Apocalypse* uh, just came out last year, I believe, um, and it's looking at the Spanish invasion of Peru. Um, and taking both sides' uh, cosmologies um, seriously, what it meant um, to think apocalyptically about that moment, because not just in the sense of things ending, but that things were being revealed too. And so, the great reads. And um, I think if you know if there's some uh, developers of Civ listening to this, um, I think it'd be really interesting to 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 talk about uh, uh, what different understandings of uh, the, sacred, the sacred do. Um, I know there's, um, there are events in the game uh, n- new to this expansion, it seems like, of, of flooding. And I think that's a really cool um, uh, uh, inclusion, I think, it, but I, and it gives some space to think about how particular um, uh, uh, civilizations also under, would take advantage um, cosmically of like what it said that um, their, their, uh, their civilization was able to master a flood rather than not um or in the case of one of the great stories of pachacuti um, is that uh the stones around Cusco came to life to defend Cusco from the chancas um, when they were attacking and mm. um i know that gets into tricky territory when you start giving a specific um faiths and sacralities and religions sort of powers in game <laughs> um uh but uh it's cool. <laughs> it does um, sound cool. <laughs> in this case, in this case, I would, I would love to see uh, Machu Picchu uh, turn into a mech. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: you know, we kind of have the start of a mech here. I feel like this could be the head right here at the top. And then, you know, uh, maybe eyes here for the window slits and then arms made of tiny uh, terraces, perhaps. I, uh, yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome. And then it could fight this volcano. Over here.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Well, any, anything, you know, I think as, as it's, it's a pleasure to see um, how they, they've incorporated Inca history so far as they they have. And, you know, that, that means that the door is forever opening. So it'll be fun to um, watch them develop um, it in the future and, um, you know, go Peru.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, that ends this episode of sibs 101. Chris, thank you so much for joining me.
2: You're welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me.